Good morning again. Welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for joining us here this morning. So last week, we saw several spectacular examples of Jesus' divine power in the Gospel of Mark. He displayed power over nature when he calmed a stormy sea simply by speaking. He displayed power over demons by casting an entire legion of them out of a possessed man. He displayed power over illness by healing a long-suffering woman from her disease. And then last but not least, he displayed power over death by raising a little girl. The simple takeaway last week was that Jesus can do things that only God is supposed to be able to do. And that's because Jesus is God's son, the fullness of God dwelling in human flesh. And when you see Jesus' divine power, the only proper response is faith. Those who believe in Jesus are called to trust, worship, and obey him, even when frightening things, things like storms and demons and illness and death. We trust him even when those things come our way. There are lots of scary things in this world, but when we remember Jesus' divine power, Displayed not just over those things, but displayed most of all in his own death on the cross for our sins and his resurrection from the grave. When we remember Jesus' power, those scary things we face lose a great deal of their power. But today we pick up where we left off last week. We finish Mark chapter 6. And as Joshua mentioned, Zach will preach next week from chapter 7. But to be honest, Mark chapter 6 feels a little bit disjointed. Not all of the verses seem to fit together very well. So we're going to examine the whole chapter at some length, but then we'll focus most of our attention on the two particularly well-known miracles that we see in this chapter. That's Jesus' feeding of the 5,000 and his walking on water. And of course, at the end, we'll try to determine what it is that we learn from Jesus about these two events. So, open up to Mark chapter 6, verse 7. Feel free to use the Bibles we have here if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home if you don't have one. But before we read, let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for Sunday. Thank you for worship. Thank you that no matter what happens to us between Monday and Saturday, We can worship you. And as Joshua mentioned earlier in the service, thank you that we can call you our Father. Thank you that we can come to you in prayer, that we can approach your throne with confidence, that we can live as sons and daughters and servants rather than living as enemies or orphans. But Father, by your grace, you have called us. By your grace, you have saved us. By your grace, you have adopted us. And we just thank you for the incredible privilege of serving you and worshiping you, not just here on Sunday morning, but with our entire lives. And Father, be with us as we read your word this morning. Uh, I pray that it would benefit us and challenge and encourage us as needed, maybe even convict us as needed. And ultimately, I pray that everything we do here this morning would be honoring to you. Again, Lord, we thank you for your son, Jesus, who has called us here together in this place at this time. And so, Father, we just worship you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. 
Well, when you start reading Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 7, you see Jesus give his 12 main disciples, a.k.a. his apostles, increased responsibility. Jesus sends them out in groups of two on a mission to do the same things he's been doing, namely preaching and performing miracles. Specifically, he gives the apostles authority to cast out demons. He also gives them detailed instructions about what to take with them, what to wear, where to go, how long to stay there, and what to do when they're rejected. So the apostles are sent out, which is actually what the word apostle means, one who is sent out. And they do everything that Jesus told them to do. They preach, they cast out demons, they heal the sick. And by the time you get to verse 30, we learn that the apostles' mission was a roaring success. Reading in verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And Jesus said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But Jesus answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. Remember that phrase, the green grass. We'll come back to it in a few minutes. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate And were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. So Jesus welcomes the twelve apostles back from their mission, and he rewards them for a job well done with some solitude and rest. Good for them. They've earned it. But the break doesn't last very long. Because even out in this desolate place, people have heard about Jesus. They've heard about his apostles. They recognize them from a distance and spread the news that Jesus and his merry band of miracle workers is very close by. You see the same thing at the end of chapter 6, when people immediately recognize Jesus, spread the word about his presence, and more great crowds form around him. That's a good summary of Jesus' ministry. But when this great crowd interrupts Jesus and the apostles' rest and solitude, Jesus doesn't get angry. He doesn't get annoyed. He doesn't get impatient. 
He sees the crowd and has compassion on them. The word translated compassion gets at the idea of being moved with pity. It can mean something like tender mercy or affection that you feel in your heart, that you feel in your gut. So Mark writes that Jesus saw this crowd as sheep without a shepherd. He has compassion on them. So Jesus fills the void and acts as their shepherd, starting with teaching. But then the problem arises. These poor sheep, well over 5,000 people, because that number probably only counted the men and not the women or the children. These 5,000 people are hungry. It's late. They're in a desolate place. How and what will these people eat? So fresh off of their successful mission of increased responsibility, Jesus looks at the apostles and gives them another task. You give them something to eat. Give them something to eat. The apostles have seen Jesus' authority. They've seen his power up close. They've watched him make a paralytic walk, cleanse a leper, heal the sick, cast out demons, calm a storm, and raise a little girl from the dead. The apostles themselves just finished doing some of these very same things. You'd think they would realize by now that if Jesus is powerful enough to do all that stuff, then surely he can find a way to feed this crowd, right? But the apostles, once again, are perplexed. They're confused by Jesus. They think his request is ridiculous. His command is impossible. They don't understand how they can be expected to feed a crowd this big. A trend is starting to become more apparent as the story progresses. And the trend is that even Jesus' own apostles still don't fully understand who he is. Even after everything they've witnessed, they underestimate and fail to believe in Jesus' divine power. So Jesus takes matters into his own hands. He breaks the people up into groups, sits them down on the green grass, and prays. And then somehow, miraculously, Jesus takes a meager supply of bread and fish and stretches it enough to feed over 5,000 people. There are even a few pieces to spare. This is not a sleight of hand. It's not a technicality. Jesus doesn't break up the bread into five or six or 7,000 crumbs. He doesn't tear up the fish into five or 7,000 scales. That way everyone can say that they technically ate. He feeds all of them. They're all satisfied. They're all full. So that's miracle number one in Mark chapter six. But before we move ahead, an observation from the story. This isn't the first time that God's people needed a shepherd and God provided one. In the book of Exodus, that shepherd's name was Moses. In that same book, God's people found themselves hungry out in a desolate place. And what did God do? Well, God somehow, miraculously, provided bread from heaven to feed that great crowd. And none of them went hungry. What we're seeing here is that Jesus, in a way, is a new and different kind of Moses. 
In a new and different kind of way, Jesus is doing the same thing that God did for his people in the past. Miraculously feeding a vast crowd in a desolate place. And in a new and different way, Jesus is doing what God did in the past. He is leading his people out of captivity. But this time, it's not being freed from Egyptian slavery. Jesus is freeing them from something much greater. Slavery to sin and death. So Jesus is a new and different kind of Moses. But Jesus is not the middleman between the crowd and God the way Moses was. Jesus is God in the flesh. That's story number one. We read story number two in verse 45. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And Jesus saw that the disciples were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So miracle number two is similar to the story we read last week, when Jesus calmed the storm back in Mark chapter 4. Jesus' power over the wind and the waves, exercised simply by speaking, showed that he is the Son of God. And we see that same divine power at work this morning when instead of calming a storm, Jesus does something just as miraculous. He walks on water. Now, when the disciples first saw him walking on the sea, they were frightened. It was likely around 4 a.m., so pretty dark. The wind was against them, so the water was probably pretty choppy. They'd been fighting against that wind, fighting against that water, for hours, and so they were likely exhausted. They even wondered if they were seeing a ghost. Maybe they rubbed their eyes, looked twice, turned to each other and said, hey, are you seeing what I'm seeing, or am I just really, really tired? And when they realized that they were seeing Jesus walking on water, they were scared. But then Jesus spoke, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. The wind calmed, the water stilled, and Jesus got into that boat. Some even wonder if Jesus' words, his introduction, it is I. They wonder if that might be another echo from the book of Exodus. When God, at the burning bush, tells Moses that his name is I Am. But like we did with the feeding of the 5,000, an observation from this miracle. If you were following along closely, you may have wondered about one of the phrases in the story. Why did Jesus mean to pass by them in verse 48? Was he really just going to walk past them while they were struggling against the wind? 
What would that have accomplished? Well, once again, we find ourselves back in the book of Exodus. In Exodus 33, Moses tells God that he wants to see his glory. But God refuses and says that no man, not even Moses, shall see him and live. So instead, God allowed Moses to stand in the cleft of a rock while his glory passed by. Moses was allowed to see God's metaphorical back, but he could not see his face. He could not see his glory fully. So when Jesus walks on the water, when he passes by the disciples before he gets in the boat, those disciples are getting their own tiny glimpse of God's glory. They get this glimpse of God's glory not by looking at the Father's metaphorical back, the way Moses did back in Exodus. They get this glimpse of God's glory by seeing the very real Christ walking on the water before their eyes. But sadly, once again, the apostles fail to truly understand the power and identity of Jesus. They were utterly astounded. They still couldn't even wrap their minds around the feeding of the 5,000, much less seeing Jesus walk on water. Mark says their hearts were hardened. And so at this point, you have to wonder, after everything they've seen and everything they've heard, what is it going to take for the apostles to understand who Jesus is? Maybe that's part of what Mark wants us to wonder about, part of what he wants us to wrestle with and chew on. So again, Jesus is powerful enough to miraculously provide food for a crowd in a desolate place, like God did back in the book of Exodus. He's also powerful enough to walk on water, something only God could have the power to do. Job 9, verse 8, says that God tramples the waves. Well, apparently so does Jesus. And finally, Jesus is the image of God's glory. In Colossians 1.15, Paul says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Think about that phrase, the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is the living embodiment of God's glory that not even Moses got to fully see. Because Jesus is God. But there's one more thing I want to focus on this morning that we learn from the two stories that we've read. These stories give us a picture of Jesus that's incredibly important for us to remember. The past few weeks, we've spent a lot of time talking about Jesus' unique authority, his heavenly kingdom, his utterly unmatched power. And those are all good things to talk about. We Christians believe in those things. We should talk about those things. But think back to chapter 6, verse 34. That's the verse where we read that Jesus had compassion on the crowd because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd. How often do you think think of Jesus as a shepherd? And more importantly, how often do you think of Jesus as your shepherd? He has compassion on us because he loves us. We can trust him to meet our eternal needs for God's mercy, forgiveness, and grace. 
The same way he met the immediate needs of that hungry crowd. Jesus sees us when we're struggling and has relieved us of our eternal burdens. The burdens of sin and death. The same way he relieved the burdens of the disciples as they struggled against the wind on that choppy water. It's incredibly important for us to remember Jesus's authority, kingdom and power. Those are all central to who Jesus is. But we should also remember that Jesus is our tender and merciful shepherd. One who has compassion for his people, provides for his people, sees us when we struggle, and has ultimately carried our burdens all the way to the cross. Jesus is the authoritative judge. Jesus is the powerful king. He is the sovereign Lord who deserves every bit of our worship. All those things are true. All those things are good. And we should never forget those things. But we also should never forget that Jesus is our compassionate shepherd. He loves us. He provides for us. He sees our struggles. And he ultimately has met our eternal needs. The New Testament speaks of Jesus as a shepherd more than once. In 1 Peter 2, Jesus is referred to as the shepherd and overseer of our souls. In 1 Peter 5, he's referred to as the chief shepherd of the church. The kind of shepherd that elders in a local church ought to look to as our model. He's the chief shepherd that we will ultimately answer to for our leadership of God's flock. But maybe one of the best passages to read as we think about Jesus as our compassionate shepherd actually is not from the New Testament. Instead, it's from the Old. It's a passage that many of us know well, a passage that often gets reserved for funerals, but should be read a whole lot more. Psalm 23, the Psalm of David says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Remember that green grass we read about in Mark chapter 6? He leads me beside still waters. He can walk on the water. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. He told his disciples, do not be afraid. It is I. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Jesus is the perfect divine shepherd. He makes us lie down in green pastures. He leads us beside still waters. He has compassion on us, provides for us, sees our struggles, our hurts, and our pains, and ultimately has relieved our burdens and has saved us. Now, the one part of Mark chapter 6 that we haven't mentioned at all is verses 14 through 29, and that's the part about the death of John the Baptist. It's the one part of Mark chapter 6 that feels the most out of place. John the Baptist was the prophet sent by God to prepare the way for Jesus' arrival. But John the Baptist gets killed 
when he ends up on the bad side of Herod Antipas, the wicked ruler who will also play a hand in Jesus' death. But ironically, it is Jesus' death that would ultimately prove to be his greatest act as shepherd of God's people. Because it's at the cross that the shepherd becomes the pure, spotless lamb, sacrificed for the sins of all who believe in him. And this act, far more than providing a meal or walking on water, as impressive as those things are, Jesus' death and resurrection show his power, show his shepherd-like compassion, provision, and protection for his people better than anything else. In John 10, Jesus refers to himself as the good shepherd. In that chapter, verse 11, verse 14, 15, 17, 18, Jesus repeatedly stresses that he is the good shepherd because he lays down his life for the sheep. He has laid down his life for us on the cross. He had compassion on us when we were like sheep without a shepherd, lost in our sin, in desperate need of someone to provide for us and protect us. He met our eternal need for God's forgiveness, mercy, and grace by laying his life down for us. He saw our struggle against sin and came down to carry that burden on his shoulders when we could not carry it. Jesus is our good shepherd. And because he laid his life down on the cross, we can lie down at peace in green pastures beside still waters. Even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil because our compassionate shepherd has defeated death in his resurrection. He has restored our souls and surely goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our lives and we shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever, seeing God's glory permanently, not just seeing it pass by. As Jesus said to the disciples in the boat, It is I. Do not be afraid. When our shepherd is with us, we have no reason to be afraid. He is powerful. He is authoritative. But he is also compassionate. He has met our eternal needs. He saw our eternal struggles and has relieved our eternal burdens. We were once like sheep without a shepherd. But we have a shepherd now. We have Christ, our good shepherd. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time we have together. As we said, we often refer to you as Lord and God and King and Ruler, and all those things are good and all those things are true, but we can also refer to you as our Father. And we can look to Jesus, not just as Lord, not just as King, not just as judge, not just as ruler, but we can look to Jesus as our good shepherd. Lord, thank you for providing this good shepherd. Thank you that Christ saw our need, saw our struggles, came down and carried that burden for us all the way to the cross. Thank you that sin and death and Satan ultimately do not win in the end, ultimately have no claim on us in the end because of what Christ has done 
and because of who Christ is. And so, Father, I pray that we would live in light of that, that we would live like the sons and the daughters that you've declared us to be, that we would live like the people bought by Christ's broken body and shed blood, because that's who we are. I pray that we would live as your children, your servants, and I pray that we would constantly look to you to be our shepherd. Again, there are many things in this world to fear. There are many things to worry about. There are many things to even be anxious about at times. But in the big scheme of things, we turn to you, we trust you, and we know that as our good shepherd, you take care of us. You see us, you know us, you hear us, and ultimately, you provide for us. We love you, we worship you, we thank you for Christ. We ask this all in his name. Amen.